from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. If you've been on campus recently, you've probably noticed that the O-Dome isn't quite looking like its usual self. That's because of a nearly $65 million renovation that's taking the home of Florida basketball, volleyball, and gymnastics to the next level. To find out more about the exciting changes to the O'Connell Center and other facility projects that are either underway or in the planning stages, today we have a very special interview with Florida's Executive Associate AD for Internal Affairs, Chip Howard. Also, we'll recap how the Gators fared in the NFL Draft with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter and get you set for softball's senior weekend with catcher Aubrey Monroe. But first, while the O'Connell Center is noticeably evolving, it isn't the only Gator venue due for some change. That's because the Odom upgrade is one of the early steps in what the UAA is calling the master plan for their facilities, and Chip Howard says that means evaluating everything. We're about 30 days from completion of the master plan, and we're working with Populous, uh, which is an international architectural firm out of Kansas City. And we've been meeting with them for four months, just identifying what our needs would be over the next three, five, seven years, and then where we need to focus our funding on and what that funding plan would be like. So basically delivering a roadmap, both to our board and to the boosters um, and to our coaches on what we're going to need to do to improve our facilities over the next six, seven, ten years. How much has the facility game, so to speak, changed recently? It seems like there's this arms race now. Colleges are putting more and more money into their facilities. How much has that changed your position, the way you have to look at things? Sure, absolutely. I think we continue to look at what our needs are and identifying those needs and then going and building for what our needs are, not necessarily what other institutions are doing. I think we've also seen across the landscape of collegiate athletics, a lot of institutions are borrowing an awful lot of money. And there's a school in our league that has $25 million dedicated per year out of their operating budget for debt service alone. $25 million just for debt service. So I think we need to be smart. I think we need to be aware of what the other institutions are doing and what we're competing against. But also I think we just need to stick to what's right for Florida. One of the things you identified as an important need was the O'Connell Center. That's what everybody's looking at right now and seeing kind of take shape. When did this plan initially start for the O-Dome? Sure. We started thinking about it uh, back in 2010. Um, in 2011, we commissioned a study with the same firm, Populous, because they had done the architectural drawings for the USF Sundome, which is a similar building, if you know that. And so, realistically, it, it was a 30-year-old building that seriously needed some, some major upgrades. So all the systems were failing. You know, obviously, when you walked in there, it didn't have premium seating. It didn't have a Sunong scoreboard. didn't have a concourse. didn't have a lot of the things that most arenas needed. And really came to a, a head when Coach Donovan said he wouldn't even take recruits in the facility. He would just take them in the practice facility. It was that much of a negative. And so, you know, we made it a priority. And so we commissioned the study, and then we went out and fundraised for it. And that's what we've been doing over the past four years. And, and after about 21 months uh, of design, we're finally getting after the construction. 
think some fans look at what's going on right now. It's actually happening just across the street from us as we sit here, and they say, why not just take the whole thing down and start from scratch? What was the decision-making process into doing the project this way as opposed to that alternative? It's more efficient, first, from a, from a costing standpoint, to keep what you can, particularly the roof. The roof was put on you know, 13, 14 years ago, I think, and so it was a, it's still a solid building. Basically, what we're doing, though, is we're going in and we're ripping everything out from the inside and leaving the shell on. Also, if you think about it, we have the natatorium um, that's in there for our swim dive program that is still in good shape. We have a gymnastics studio that we just upgraded four years ago. Um, and so those areas did not need to be uh, touched, really, for the most part. And so we're going in and basically if you envision a big scoop, reaching in and pulling everything out from the inside, and then we're rebuilding everything. When you look at what the Odom service is, and maybe some people just think about basketball, they don't think about the other things you just mentioned, how difficult did that make this project to plan because of all of the programs that are impacted by it? Well, the first thing is a university building. It's not an athletic building at all. So we don't own and operate it. We rent space in there. And so from that standpoint, we needed to have all of the user groups at the table when we were first designing it and now when we're constructing it because it's an ENG building here on campus. There's classes that are held in there. There's non-athletic events. There's craft fair. There's concerts, commencements, all those types of things still needed to be thought of when we're talking about the design of the facility. It's not just a basketball arena. It's much more than that. But we think that's a positive, and we love the fact fact that, you know, although we compete in there athletically, there's non-athletic events in there too, which really makes it a community space. What was the ultimate vision for it when you sat down? I know you mentioned the Sun Dome is something similar. Were there other buildings you looked at and said, this is what we want to emulate? Well, I think when you looked at, you know, the landscape of arenas that were being built around that time, we identified what our main goals were, and that was the infrastructure. So HVAC, plumbing, electrical uh, was most important. We needed some premium seating areas for our fans, which you never could deliver before. You know, we needed the state-of-the-art lighting system for uh, sports lighting, as well as AV, so we needed a center-hung scoreboard and, and supplementary scoreboards. And then we needed a regular concourse, like a traditional concourse underneath the seating bowl. If you remember way back when, when the O'Connell Center was open a few months ago, the circulation was on the inside of the bowl, which is you know, really inefficient. So really when we wanted to do that, and because of that concourse, we were able to open up more points of sale for concessions and double our opportunities for restrooms. And that's really what our goals were. When you're doing this project, and as you said, keeping the shell and trying to change everything else, what was the most challenging aspect of planning it? What new feature did you want to add that was going to be the most difficult? I think we identified what we wanted early on. Uh, the challenge was the budget, and I think that we started out in 2011 with a pretty slow economy for our estimates that we got from our study, and, and as the economy ramped up, through 2012, 2013, 2014, the price kept escalating. And particularly here in town, in Gainesville, the local market, you can see all the building that's going on. Well, there's competition for concrete, there's competition for steel, there's competition for all the subcontractors and vendors. And so that was the biggest thing we need to get a handle on, and we think we have that now. What do you hope is the greatest thing fans can take away from this new building? What feature are you most excited about? I think the overall fan experience. So I, th I think when someone's sitting in their seats, although it may not be a first-level seat, it may be up what we consider the second level, but a nice, comfortable chair-back seat with great sports lighting, a great sound system, uh, a great center-hung scoreboard with great video content and a great video scene on it. I think that's when someone's sitting there and they want to go down and get something to drink or eat and there's no line and they want to go to the restroom and there's no line. To me, that's what we can deliver. When you're planning a project like this that obviously has a deadline that's staring you down, trying to get this building done by sure. December, 
you're doing it in Florida during the summer. There's so many things that can go wrong weather-wise. How do you plan out a project like this, and, and how do you maybe prepare for those challenges that will come along the way? Oh, we're closely with the contractor. I mean, the contractor does a lot of work down here in the south, uh, primarily based out of Birmingham and Jacksonville, so they know what, what we're dealing with. Also, that was one, another factor we were able to keep the roof on. So, I mean, we're, got, we're dried in already, so we can work through rainstorms. We can work through whatever weather it, it comes up. But also having, uh, you know, a great working relationship with, with the contractor and knowing what our ultimate goal is and really leaning on them and keeping them on task to get to the December 9th date, which is going to be commencement. It doesn't get as much attention from fans, but certainly everybody internally knows how important it is. Can you tell us about the Hawkins Center project and getting that new OSL up and running? Absolutely. That's a game changer. I mean, every one of our student-athletes is going to utilize that facility. Um, you know, the construction is on target. It's on time. Uh, it's within budget. Uh, we're really excited about it. You know, within the next 30 days, we'll be moving furniture into the new facility. Um, we're going to have uh, a grand opening, ribbon-cutting ceremony towards the end of June uh, to really open up the center itself. And so we're really excited about it. Hawkins Center for Academic and Personal Excellence is exactly what that title says. It's trying to mold and build the complete person. And so when we talk about, you know, victories in the court, victories in the pool, you know, our victory is going to be when those student-athletes graduate and they go off into the working world and really start their careers. And so, you know, the fact that we're going to have, you know, dedicated research space, a wellness suite for people to talk to counselors, a nutrition suite with a demonstration kitchen, academic advising offices, an auditorium, um, leadership institute, I mean, on and on and on what this facility is going to be able to dedicate to the student-athletes is going to be second to none in the, in the country, and we're really excited about it. We started today by talking about the master plan, and certainly a lot of this relates back to that, but once these projects are complete, what's at the top of the docket for you guys to get underway with next? You know, phase one, item A, however you want to put it, is going to be, you know, upgrading the football facilities. You know, the locker room area, the team space uh, has not been touched in a long time. We really need to uh, pay attention to that and dedicate the resources for that. Also, softball, you know, we've talked a little bit about it before, but the expansion of the softball facility is overdue for what Coach Walton has built down there. And so there's some other smaller um, projects, potentially maybe at baseball, but every single facility uh, has been looked at, has been broken down as part of this master plan. Obviously, everything that's in the O'Connell Center is taken care of for a little while, so there's really not a whole lot in there. But every other facility, including our maintenance facility, is being looked at right now and sequenced in a way that we know when we need to build it, what we need to do, and how much we're going to need to raise to build it. An impressive total of seven former Gators had their dreams come true during last week's NFL draft and are now preparing to begin their careers at the next level. But even more significant than the total number of picks for Florida is the streak that was extended. And Scott Carter helped us put that in perspective. Yeah, Adam, you're looking at the, what, the fifth longest streak in the country in terms of consecutive years having a player go into the NFL draft and get selected. I mean, Florida's had a player now selected 64 consecutive years. And, you know, when you think about that, you, like, stand back and look at that. Whoa, that's that's a long time. And, uh, you know, when you compare that to other SEC schools, Georgia's next at 24 consecutive years. So that just kind of goes to show you the, the longevity of the uh, success around here and the uh, program's all around the country, they, they go through ups and downs, and Florida's certainly endeared its share of downs, but somehow they've always had a player get drafted, and, uh, you know, seven off of this team, Adam, I think that's pretty good. 
Last summer, the DBU talk was all over Twitter for Florida LSU, John, back and forth. Uh, Florida did not win that battle on the field against LSU, but they may be able to lay claim to that with what they did in the draft. Yeah, you're right, Adam. Two guys drafted in the first round uh, from the same school, from the same secondary. That's very rare. Uh, Vernon Hargraves went with the number 11 overall pick to the Bucks, and six picks later, you got Keanu Neal going to Atlanta. And, you know, we kind of knew that Vernon Hargraves was going to be a high-end pick in the top of the first half of the draft. The Bucks kind of pulled a little surprise there. They actually traded down from number 9, two spots to number 11, but they still got him. So uh, Vernon gets to go home play uh, for the Bucks, and, uh, you know, he's got a chance to go down there. And with a secondary that gave up 31 touchdown passes last year, he's got a chance to play right away. And then Keanu Neal, his stock rose more than any other Gator in the draft since the end of that uh, bowl loss to Michigan. Keanu, at the start of this whole process, most people figured him as a third, maybe a late second-round guy. But he really impressed uh, the scouts, the combine, and then he had a good pro day here. And, you know, he's got some history with Atlanta. Obviously, Dan Quinn, the head coach of the Falcons, uh, recruited uh, Keanu to Florida. He left to go to Seattle as defensive coordinator before uh, Keanu could play. But, uh, you know, those two have maintained contact and obviously through the draft reconnected. And the Falcons liked what they saw in him and made him the 17th pick in the draft. And uh, I think it's only the fourth time since 1981, Adam, that two uh, defensive backs from the same team have been in the top 20 picks of the draft in the same year. Keanu Neal was a surprise for the right reasons, going up in the draft as opposed to falling down. Maybe the one disappointment for Florida, Jonathan Bullard, who some thought would sneak into maybe the late first round, he ends up as a third-round guy. Once he didn't go in the first round on uh, Thursday night, I'm thinking like everybody else out there, he's probably going to get picked you know, sometime early to mid-second round. And then you start seeing those defensive ends, defensive tackles start flying off the board. And there John Bullard still was on the board early in the third round. And the Bears picked him at number 72. And the Bears have a history of Florida players. They drafted 20 over the years, which is second to any team in the NFL, only behind the Steelers, who picked 24. And, you know, I think they're going to be happy with what they got, although he did fall some in the draft from the analysts. You know, after the draft, after the pick was made, they were surprised. But then it seemed like within a couple hours, like everybody was saying, wow, what a great pick by the Bears. Getting John Bullard at number 72. He's going to go up there. To, the GM has already said they're looking at him as a defensive end in a 3-4 scheme, which is if there was one question about him, it was where was he going to play in the NFL? Well, the Bears have kind of said we're going to put him at end in a 3-4. He's going to be playing uh, some his first year. But, yeah, he, he did go lower than expected at him, but he still has a great opportunity there with the Bears. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to be surprised at all if he has a good rookie season. The next Gators to go off the board were both in the fourth round. Two guys we had a lot of questions about, Antonio Morrison because of his injury issues and Demarcus Robinson because of his discipline issues. But I guess for both of them, ultimately, what they showed in the field reigned supreme. Both have the talent that scouts covet the next level, and that's what got them into the NFL, what got them to be fourth-round picks. Quite frankly, you know, going into Saturday and going into the draft, uh, the final rounds, you know, you felt that both guys could get picked, but there was no certainty there. And so the Colts take uh, Antonio Morrison at number 125 overall, and uh, they just love this toughness, things that we've talked about on this podcast. Antonio is not going to blow anybody away so much with his uh, times in the 40 or some other measurables, but he's just tough, hard-nosed kind of football player. 
And that's really what the Colts talked about when they made the pick. I mean, that's what got him on their board and kept him there. And then Demarcus Robinson goes to the next pick, number 126 overall. He goes to the Chiefs. And, you know, we talked about earlier, John Buller was a little bit of a surprise how he fell. And Ken O'Neill was a bit of a surprise how he rose. Maybe in my my pick would be Demarcus Robinson, maybe the biggest surprise when you really look at it because he has so many question marks about just off-the-field stuff, some character stuff that teams are going to ask about. They want to know answers. And yet the Chiefs, they liked what they saw enough to make him a fourth-round pick, and he's going to join a very crowded group of receivers out in Kansas City, but you know, just from listening uh, to their GM talk and uh, their coach, they like this guy. They like what he brings, and they believe he's a really uh, a playmaker that they need on that offense. And uh, so it was definitely a win-win for uh, both of those guys, Morrison and Robinson, in the draft. Last two players picked for Florida's sixth round. We saw Kelvin Taylor go off the board, and then in the seventh round, Alex McAllister, another guy with the question marks for discipline issues. Talk about the situations that they're going into. Well, we'll start with Kevin Taylor. Uh, you know, Kevin left school after his junior year, and he's one of those guys that you knew he wasn't going to go in the top two rounds, but you figured he was going to find somebody who likes him out there. And just from looking at the pick and looking at the offense that he's going into, I think this could be a really good landing spot for uh, Taylor because you got to remember, Chip Kelly took over the 49ers recently. He loves that kind of spread, just using players in a different way. Players who can cut and find space, and that's everything that Kevin Taylor is about. I mean, he's at his best when he gets a little hole. He's a quick cutter. He's not going to blow anybody away at top speed, but he could fit very well into a Chip Kelly offense running, you know, in high performance. And then look at Alex McAllister. Again, he, he's a little bit in that group with Morrison and Robinson. Had some off-the-field issues while he was at Florida. Had a suspension in it last year and missed his final game. And he didn't know where he would go. He ends up going in the seventh round to the Eagles. And uh, Howie Roseman, who actually uh, got his undergraduate degree here at Florida, he's now GM of football operations for the Eagles and you know heavily involved in their draft. They obviously did due diligence on uh, McAllister. They really like him as a kid. You know, he said in his press conference that, hey, he's going to have to grow up some, but as a football player, he's got all the tools you need in the NFL, especially as an edge rusher. And uh, so McAllister is going to get his shot in the NFL. Uh, he's going to go into a situation, again, the Eagles have a first-year coach. They're kind of revamping the franchise a little bit. And it's a fresh start for the Eagles, a fresh start for Alex McAllister. And, you know, he certainly has the talent, and we'll see if he can uh, maybe grow up some like Rose said and make an impact. The NFL draft is often a circus with a lot of side plots and other stories that aren't related to the actual draft. One of those involved Carlos Dunlap, a former Gator who went up to the podium to announce a pick wearing a cap and gown. Talk about the backstory behind that. Yeah, you know, Carlos Dunlap, he left Florida, Adam, after uh, the 2009 season. Florida fans will remember him as the defensive MVP uh, against Oklahoma in the 2008 national title game. And uh, he certainly made his mark at UF after his junior year. He felt he was ready to go into the NFL draft. His mom uh, really didn't want him to. She was very hesitant. So they worked out a negotiation before he actually negotiated his first contract. If he was going to leave school after his uh, junior year, he had to promise her to come back and finish his degree. So here he is. Uh, he's getting ready to enter his seventh year with the Cincinnati Bengals. And over the last six years, he's come back to UF, sometimes on campus, sometimes taking online courses. But he completed his degree and finally wrapped up the uh, requirements uh, this summer. And instead of coming down to uh, Florida to participate in commencement ceremonies at 
the stadium he used to play in last weekend. And the NFL had invited him to uh, Chicago to introduce the Bengals pick, and he came up, hey, why don't I wear my cap and gown? So the, all the organizations got together to Florida sent him a cap and gown. He came out and announced the Bengals pick, and obviously it was a big moment for Carlos Dunlap and his family because, like I said, he's he's been away from Florida now for uh, six years. He's established himself as a really good player on the Bengals defensive line, had a career-high 13 and a half sacks last year. But he realizes his mom's a lifelong educator. She's now a principal up at an elementary school in uh, North Charleston, South Carolina. And he never forgot that promise. And there he was on Friday night, and mom was there with him in the green room. While the top-ranked Gator softball team will almost certainly be at home throughout the road to the Women's College World Series, Senior Weekend has arrived for five of the most accomplished athletes in Florida's history. This class already owns back-to-back national titles, and this weekend has the chance to become the first group in program history to claim three SEC crowns. The vocal leader of this group is undoubtedly catcher Aubrey Monroe, and while her voice has gone hoarse after a long season behind the plate, she still has a very clear understanding of how her class has helped the Gators maintain their excellence. Once you've accomplished something, you've accomplished it, but there's always someone new coming in that hasn't accomplished it yet. So there's still that hunger and that youth in the younger players, and I think that kind of carries over, and then just Coach does such a great job of recruiting competitors and winners and people who are always wanting to win. They're never satisfied. So I think that has a lot to do with like our culture as a program is that Coach recruits people who want to win, who are competitors no matter what. It doesn't matter what you've done yesterday, what you're going to do tomorrow, that all that matters is right now winning this game with this pitch. As you get closer to your senior weekend, how hard is it to believe that this is here? Did it just fly by? What, what are you feeling right now? Everyone says it every year. Oh, my gosh, it just flies by. Every senior class is like, oh, my gosh, it just flew by. It flew by. And you don't think about it until it's your turn. And so now I'm here, and it's weird, and it's, it's bittersweet because I feel like I've just enjoyed my time as a Gator so much, and I've enjoyed this experience and this place and this fan base, just everything that that goes into being a Gator that makes it so special. I've just enjoyed it so much and I've had such a good experience in part because of our success. I mean, obviously that adds to that. So I think just having that and having that opportunity makes it almost sad. Like, I don't want it to be over. I'm 22 and I'm like, like I'm playing softball after college. It's not even about like, oh, this is my last softball. This is the last I'm ever going to play. Like, I'm sad because I loved being a Gator so much and it's just such a unique experience than anywhere else in the country. You've always been known for your defense, and then in the last month you've gone on this offensive surge. How do you explain this power trip, you could say, here at the end of your career? My mom and I call it, like, senior Aubrey. Because um, <laughs> in high school I kind of did the same thing. Like, my senior year of high school, like, I just, I think I just really buy in and, like, I can feel that it's this is the last year. This is the last year before it's all going to change. Because no matter what, like, once you're done, it's all going to change. And that's fine. Like, I'm still going to be around next year, but it's... My time in the Gator uniform is coming to an end, and I think, I don't know if it's just like this weird mental thing, but like I can feel that, and I want to make the most of it, and I think I get more confident. It's really, it's weird, and it's hard to describe. I wish I could do it all the time, Um, (laughs) but I just know that it's coming to an end, and I want it to be special. Going back to defense, how much pride do you take in the fact that people don't even try to steal bases on you at this point? I love it. (laughs) I love it. I mean, it's almost like it sounds so out of it. Like it's almost boring sometimes. Like I want people to run, but <laughs> Give me at the same to do back right, here. <laughs> exactly. But at the same time, for me, that's a big respect thing. So I'm 
I don't know, honored isn't really the right word, but like when I think of catching, I think of that as like my specialty, like that is my craft. So for me, I feel like I've done a really good job at working my craft when people don't run. Because if my pitchers don't think somebody's gonna run, or if they know that I'm gonna block whatever pitch comes, you know, those type of those little things that a lot of people don't think about that I've put into trying to perfect my craft of catching, I think just makes my pitchers and my team better. And I just wanna make my team better. You mentioned the pitchers you handle. You've had three of them this year, three very different pitchers, mm -hmm. each of them in a different class, different levels of experience. Can you just discuss their differences and what makes each of them unique? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, like, the difference in age, and I don't think I ever realized how big of a factor that was until this year because I was always younger in the battery. You know, I always had Hannah, I had Lauren, I had somebody who was older than me. Now I'm the oldest in the battery. So for me, like when I was working with Kelly, I had to take a step back because I was like, what the heck? Like, there just seems like a little bit of a disconnect here. Duh, she's 18. She's, I mean, I had to remember what I was like my freshman year. So I had to really take a step back and remember that youth and that, um, like, because I didn't think the game when I was a freshman the way I do now. I didn't think counts. I didn't think with hitters. Like, that was all stuff that I learned from Rocha and Hannah and Lauren and things like that. So I feel like I had to take a step back and really think about how I could help her grow. So it's not even just about this year for her. I want to help her set up for her next three years. You know, I want to make this transition easier if I can. And similar with Lily, you know, she's got a year under her belt, but kind of same thing where like I've seen such a difference in her from freshman year to this year that it's helped me work with Kelly better. You know, so I learned from them and, and how to work with them and how I can work with other people. So I feel like I've learned that a lot being like on the older end of the battery now. And then they're just also different personality-wise. I mean, Delaney, she never stops smiling. She's so happy. And we have so much experience together from travel ball that she's so easy for me to work with. And then Lily's personality is so different. She's such a competitor and then also so goofy. And then Kelly, she's so smart and she's so calculated. She tries so hard. And so that kind of, I mean, she's like hungry. She wants to do so well. She's a competitor too. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that they're all such huge competitors, but in such unique ways. When you got the call from Team USA that you were going to be competing with the national team, what was your reaction like in that moment? Well, I sent out an email, and I so I read the email, and I called my mom because my mom and I are really, really close, and softball is a huge part of us being so close. And I was actually sitting out in the parking lot right outside of the locker room, and I called my mom, and I was like, Mom, I made the team, and she just started crying. Like, it's just, like, quiet, and she's crying. Um, and then I kind of started crying, too, just because it's been a really long journey with my mom. Playing USA was, like, all I could think about in fourth grade because it was 04, and, the, like, with Athens, I went and saw them play on their little, like, pre-Olympic tour, and I was obsessed with, like, Olympic softball. And then, oh, wait, they decided that it was not going to be in the Olympics anymore after 08, and I was, like, devastated because I was like, my dreams are to play USA softball. So that kind of changed my, I guess, my route. I mean, obviously, college now is, like, the biggest stage. And then I kind of just put it on the back burner, you know, because... Team USA never, they never really had any interest in me. I feel like they were just looking for bigger hitters and it just wasn't really, it wasn't for me. And I kind of accepted that and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, okay, well you can, you're gonna go, you got invited to the trial, you might get drafted for pro. And I'm like, wait, what? I had no opportunities and not have a bunch. <laughs> so it was a weird feeling, but I was so excited and it was just like my fourth grade dream coming to life when I saw my name on the list. You've done so much in the community here in your time. What are you most proud of off the field? One of the coolest projects we did for the community is Gator Tracks. 
And that's where we raise funds to go buy shoes. We have people donate shoes. We do this big shoe drive. And we go and deliver. We wrap them all up for Christmas and hundreds and hundreds of boxes of shoes. And then we go out during finals week uh, before winter break and we deliver them to these local schools. And it's really fun because you get there and, like, all the kids come in and you have, like, names on all the boxes for who they're for. And so you'll sit there and you'll be like, where's Ashley or where's this one? And they're, like, so excited. And you say, can't open it yet, can't open it yet. So then all of a sudden you say, okay, open your boxes. And it's just like paper everywhere. (laughs) These kids are going nuts, you know, and they're just, they get these new shoes. And it's just, it really puts things in perspective because there's a lot of people in this area that aren't as fortunate as we are. And you don't see it because we get in our little like UF bubble and, you know, you can't, you don't see it. And then you get out there and you're like, wow, these kids are so happy for a new pair of shoes. You know what I mean? And like, these are kids that might not get a new pair of shoes for a really, really long time, they've got holes in their shoes, you know. I've always really, really liked being a part of Gator Tracks. I know this is probably really difficult, but if you had to pick a favorite moment on the field, what would it be? Hmm, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how lucky am I that there's so many? (laughs) Well, it's funny because I always think about stuff like right before. So, like, in 2014, we've got two outs, we need one more out, so Mm -hmm. beat Alabama. And I remember looking right at Taylor Schwartz at first, and we're just looking at each other and we just smiled. And it's just, it's like a quiet moment. You know, so that's one of my more favorite moments. And then 2015, similar kind of situation. It was game three, so obviously we'd split. It was like now or never kind of day. Like, no matter what, this is the last game of the season. And I remember texting my mom, like, we're going to do it for the game. Like, we're going to win it. Then during the game, it starts getting down to the end. And I remember finding my mom in the bleachers. And she's just, like, sitting there, like, oh, like, her hands over her mouth. Like, she's <laughs> just so happy. So that's one of my favorite moments. And then... Dog piles, obviously, are always fun. Actually, I got in trouble from freshman year. My first dog pile ever, I just took Hannah out. Like, just <laughs> laid her out. It was so bad. I wasn't supposed to do that before the World Series. <laughs> but I guess those moments, I mean, obviously, all those dog piles. When you look at the rest of this season, what's the outlook for this team? Is it championship or bust? Is that what the outside thinks, but not what you think? How do you approach the last few weeks as you enter the stretch here? Um, at the beginning of the year, I would have probably said, like, Ooh, we're going to win it. And it's not a doubt thing now. It's just a different kind of focus. We still want to win. We still can win. We still want to win. But now I'm sort of in this place where I want to, like, I just want to enjoy it. Like, I want to stretch it as long as I can. <laughs> like, I don't want it to be over. Being so close to the end, I think it's more about enjoying it. But at the same time, I mean, I'd really, really enjoy another championship. <laughs> so I think, I mean, we're just focused on winning one game at a time. That mentality has always worked for us. And it's fun because once postseason starts, everything starts over. You know, you get into regionals and it doesn't matter. Just win and get through it. Get to Super Regionals, whatever you did before, doesn't matter. Just get through it. Get to the World Series, what you did before, doesn't matter. Five games. You have to win five games of the World Series and then you're a champion. So I think just having that game-by-game mentality has always helped us and that's always going to be the focus. And that's going to do it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to make sure you never miss an episode. Our next installment comes your way next Thursday and will feature a preview of the massive series for Florida baseball as they prepare to host Vanderbilt. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at KDC Shoal Presley Stadium.